I always stress that careers, at the end of the day, they are about hard work, they're about values, but quite often also about luck. And I certainly consider myself to have been very lucky and privileged to have had the chance to serve in office, in especially the three key portfolios. There are not too many people in Finnish history who have been able to do that. My guest today has an impressive CV from Finnish politics, having served as the country's prime minister, finance minister and foreign minister. He also served as a member of the European Parliament for four years and as a vice president of the European Investment Bank from 2017 to 2020. Alexander Stubi is also a multilingual sports enthusiast and an academic, currently serving as director of the School of Transnational Governance at the European University Institute. I am Markus Hippi and I spoke to Alexander Stubb on the big interview. Alexander Stubb, welcome to the big interview. Shall we start by talking about your background and your interest? in making a difference in politics. I wonder, could you start by telling us about what it was that drew you into politics? Was it always something you wanted to do? Probably not. I mean, I come from a very apolitical family. As a matter of fact, I think the running story used to be that uh, never talk to strangers about religion or politics. And that was the mantra. I came from a sports family and I actually wanted to become a professional sportsman in one thing or another, first in ice hockey and and later on in golf. And my real sort of academic awakening happened when I went on a little golf scholarship to a place called Furman University in Greenville, South Carolina. And I very quickly realized that I'm not good enough to become a professional golfer and uh, I'm super interested in international relations. And I didn't look back after that. So for me to come with highfalutin ideas of wanting to make peace and improve the world at a young age, I'd probably be skewing the truth a little bit. That wasn't my thing, but I did wake up sometime in the 1990s. And indeed, your rise in politics was very fast. You probably became a household name in Finland when you became a member of the European Parliament back in 2004. If we look at what helped you to become such a successful politician in the Finnish history? Was it, for example, your international outlook, having spent such long periods of time overseas? Yeah, probably. I mean, in many ways, it was my uplift and my downfall. And I'd probably rewind a little bit before my time in the European Parliament from 2004 to 2008. I think I rose to some kind of public prominence, if you will, as a so-called EU expert. So I had really been if I may use the term, turned on by European affairs in the United States. And the timing in many ways was, well, lucky and impeccable because it was the end of the Cold War and then Finland applied for EU membership and became a member in 1995. So I did academic work there and then I joined the civil service, the Ministry for Foreign Affairs, not as a diplomat, as an expert, I think the Finnish media started to use me for, you know, random commentary on European affairs. And there weren't too many people who I guess at the time were able to do that or weren't able necessarily to, you know, I don't know, outline things in three points or or whatever or give clarity. So then I became a member of the European Parliament and I actually joined the party, the National Coalition Party in Finland only in 2004, five months before the elections. And it was a bit of a I'd say mishap of democracy that I got second most 
votes in the country. I do think that it was this combination of having an international background and being an expert in European affairs that brought me into politics. But, you know, I'm sure we can look a little bit forward at some stage. It was perhaps my downfall as well at the end of the day. Exactly. I'm wondering, back in the day when you were giving those interviews, did you feel like, did you feel like media, the media was maybe helping you as well? You had a reputation of being a rather media-friendly figure, and it was often known that Alexander may wake well give an interview if you ask nicely. Yeah, I mean, certainly. I think that probably comes from my dad. My dad, Joras, who is now 87, and, and he's still the chief talent scout of the National Hockey League in Europe, so all the European ice hockey players going to the NHL go through him. He always said when he was younger, and you know, you never beat the media, so work with it. That pertained also to ice hockey at the time and, and the type of publicity that you get. But I, I did feel that I had a bit of a calling of, I don't know, European pedagogics or something like that. And I didn't have a problem with being in the media. And I was also very lucky that I had superiors who didn't mind that because You know, when you're in foreign ministry, I mean, I was working under greats like the late Antti Satuli and Eikka Kosonen and others who were my bosses. And they they allowed this to take place. And I I really appreciate that. I also wrote stuff, you know, books and things and, and columns. So I always say this in politics, you will not raise to prominence without media. Media is extremely powerful, whether traditional or or social. And, you know, I'll also be very frank, you can't fight the media. You can't pick a fight with the media because as a politician, you always lose. And, and that, that was my take, I think, at the time. Your vast experience in politics includes, obviously, positions as a foreign minister, trade and Europe minister and prime minister of Finland. Alexander, what were your principles in steering Finland? How did you want to shape its place in the world? I think it's probably an exaggeration to say that a minister or politician can steer or fully lead. You, you really can't. I mean, we live in a transnational world where there is no center or nexus or gravity of power. It's basically a combination of events that take place in order for something to happen. So, you know, you have impact, of course, from government, from civil society NGOs, from media, from business, the private sector, from academia. So you can only nudge things in, in one direction. But I guess if I were to sort of define it, I'd say that I had a set of values, which I hope at least that I, I stayed fairly faithful to. You know, I believed in liberal and still do liberal democracy and social market economy. I believe in globalization. I'm very liberal when it comes to basic values, say, for instance, gay rights or equality between men and women. I'm pro-immigration. So I, I, I try to, through my persona, I guess, make Finland as international as possible. Because remember that, you know, in the 1970s and 1980s, when I was growing up, Finland was still, for all intents and purposes, a little bit backward. And You know, we weren't a society that was truly international. But then in the 1990s, things turned around with Nokia and EU membership. And I I guess I was trying to push that bucket. So those were my principles. But for me to claim that I, you know, somehow took the lead, I, I, I don't think that's the case. You just do what you think is right and then things happen. When you were trying to follow those principles or values of yours, how much frustration did you feel in Finland when you were involved in daily politics? 
Well, I'd probably divide it into two. I mean, I, I don't think I felt, I mean, I, I didn't feel that much frustration in the beginning, you know, when I was an MEP or when I was doing ministerial posts that were essentially international. So foreign minister, trade minister, and, and Europe minister. I felt that I had, you know, the freedom and the right to express myself. And, you know, sometimes on the limit, I admit that, you know, I was very pro-European and got a lot of slack for it. I was one of the few ministers who were openly advocating for NATO membership. I got a lot of slack for that. I was also, you know, ready to criticize Russia when a lot of Finns were not. I got a lot of slack for that. But I didn't feel that there was that much pressure. But when I sort of converted to and became, I mean, almost I'd say by accident, I know this sounds a bit crass, but when I became prime minister in 2014 and then finance minister in 2015, that's when I started to feel the sort of pressure and the discomfort of office. And, and then it wasn't enough anymore to, you know, speak of things international. And when you start speaking of things national, local, it becomes very identity-based. And, and that's when it becomes quite frustrating and you end up taking a lot of hits. But it's, you know, part of democracy, I guess, absolutely no complaints. Do you feel like you achieved what was realistic? Yeah, I guess. I wrote a little memoir together with Karo Hamalaid, and that, uh, I guess towards the end of the book, I conclude that I achieved personally or did what I, I possibly could have. And again, I come back to the idea that, you know, it, it's a combination of having a set of values, then sometimes having to compromise things that you disagree with. But the problem, I guess, with today's democracy is, is, is that the pace is, is really fast. I mean, I think I was very fortunate to be in government for eight years. That's a long time in, in today's world. Probably a little bit less fortunate than my stint as prime minister and finance minister and chairman of the party. That was, you know, slightly shorter. But, you know, here, for instance, in Florence at the European University Institute School of Transnational Governance, where I direct and do a lot of stuff with students, I always stress that careers, at the end of the day, they are about hard work, they're about values, but quite often also about luck. And I certainly consider myself to have been very lucky and privileged to have had the chance to serve in office in especially the three key portfolios foreign minister, finance minister, and prime minister. There are not too many people in Finnish history who have been able to do that. So I'm very lucky. That's very true. Alex, you've been in Florence since 2020. What have your thoughts been when you've been following what's happening in Finland and what kind of a role that country is playing in the world? Yeah, well, I mean, you might have noticed as a, as a, as a Finn, but probably not everyone you know, listening to our discussion here would know that when I left government in 2016, I took a conscious decision of not commenting or being involved in the Finnish public eye. I always felt that, you know, once you've been in office, you've done your thing for, you know, uh, God and country, if you will, a little bit tongue in cheek. I never wanted to comment that. And, you know, I've had hundreds of requests for interviews and things, but I always felt that you know, an ex-prime minister giving advice or saying anything about things in Finland, having been Finnish prime minister, is only a nuisance and an annoyance to the sitting prime minister, whoever that is. And I, I still stick to that. I mean, I do obviously follow Finnish politics, and I'm in touch with old friends and colleagues. And 
And I guess my take is that it ain't getting any easier. You know, the, the pressures of public office, of public life, of politics are extremely harsh nowadays. And I don't, you know, I actually root for them quite often. And I'm, I'm happy that we're still able to attract smart people to, to you know, deal with our affairs in representative democracies. I, I sometimes wonder what would it have been to be prime minister during COVID, during the war in Ukraine, and now during the energy crisis. And as a matter of fact, I, I think that that would have been to a certain extent, you know, a blessing in the sense that then you're dealing with real stuff. And quite often people are rooting for you. When things are more calm, people don't necessarily root for you. And I've said this before, and I, I find this very unfortunate. I think this is universal in democracies. A lot of people want the prime minister to fail. And I think that's that's absurd. <laughs> so, you know, I look back at my time and said, you know, I did what I did. But I always say it's not the prime minister that makes the agenda. It's the agenda that makes the prime minister. And I wonder how I would have coped with this agenda. Certainly it would have been a challenge, but at the same time, quite interesting. As you mentioned a bit earlier, you got a fair bit of slack for being quite a pro-EU and pro-NATO voice. And for example, in the question of Russia and what's been happening in the recent months, when you think that Finland is now on its way to becoming a NATO member, do you feel that you were right back in the day, that the critics were wrong? Yeah, it's sort of the wisdom of hindsight. I mean, the nice thing with Finnish foreign policy is that it can change tack when realities on the ground change. And, and that comes from you know, history, the fact that we do share that 1,340-kilometer border with Russia. So it's always been this mix of idealism and, and realism, idealism in that we want to cooperate with Russia and realism in that we still have one of the largest military services and armies in Europe. But I don't, you know, I don't look at bygones with this sort of schadenfreunde or, or, or happiness that I was right, you were wrong. And I think we've seen that in the sort of super quick transition from, you know, 20% in favor of NATO membership and 50 against to first the reverse, 50 in favor, 20 against, and now 80% in favor of NATO membership. But I do think that there will have to come a time in Finland when we go through what happened, because I, I think strategically Finland made a mistake. You know, we should have joined in 1995. I spoke about revitalizing a debate on, on NATO membership in 2008 after my experience in mediating peace in Georgia. I, I made a claim that, you know, Russia is once again behaving aggressively, thinking about spheres of interest and looking at foreign policy as a zero-sum game and willing to go the full mile. And I got criticized for that very heavily. So I would like to you know, see that debate taking place at some stage once we have finally joined NATO and are in calmer waters. But I don't, as I said, you know, I don't look back and say, yeah, I was right, you were wrong. I'm looking back and saying thank you to the Finnish public for steering Finnish political leadership towards NATO membership. Without Putin, it would not have happened. Talking about Putin now. Do you think the European Union's response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine has taught you something new about how well the EU works and where its flaws are? Yeah, I mean, to a certain extent, I'm, I guess, positively surprised at how quickly things have happened. So if you look at European crisis management, and I'll simplify a little bit, during the euro crisis and the financial crisis, it was very binary. 
north versus south, you know, your fault, I'm not paying type of mentality. So split Europe. Then during COVID, actually people felt that, hey, you know, we are in the same boat on this. Let's try to figure out what to do together. And now finally, in this final step with the war in Ukraine, with Russian aggression, we are united by a common enemy. And of course, you know, you can go back and say too little, too late. But at the same time, in my 30 years of working with the European Union or studying the European Union, I have never seen the European Union being more adamant, more united, more effective or faster, whether it's about rolling out five waves of sanctions, whether it's about reversing armaments policy and finance, whether it's about taking care of Ukrainian refugees, whether it's about adapting to new circumstances on energy, etc., etc. Now, is this going to last? Of course not. You know, we don't live in a utopia, but for as long as Russia behaves as aggressively as it does, I do think that the European Union will continue to be at least fairly united. Of course, the big test is going to be this winter and the energy crisis. But even there, we've advanced leaps and bounds. Do you think the West more widely should have dealt with Moscow differently already before the invasion of Ukraine began? Well, I mean, I guess, again, with the wisdom of hindsight, I'd say yes and no. No, because I think the philosophy that many of us have had, international liberals like myself, is this innate belief that things that connect us like technology or trade or energy or information, they make war impossible between parties and they force us to be together. Interdependence is a good thing, if you will. So that's why I think it was wise of the West to try to integrate Russia into the international community and into the European market. But I guess, yes, we were wrong in the sense that we didn't understand that Russia was not capable of dismantling its superpower nostalgia and then after that moving into a normal or becoming a normal European law-abiding state. So, of course, we can look back and say that mistakes were made, for instance, with the energy dependency. But then again, You know, we didn't expect Russia to behave the way in which it did. But now, I guess we're wiser, unfortunately. How much optimism do you feel? Do you think the West can one day again collaborate and work with Russia? Oh, we are in this for the long haul, I'm afraid. You know, because the Russian atrocities in Ukraine are simply so horrendous. And we're looking at, you know, destruction. We're looking at death tolls, which we haven't seen in Europe since World War II. And we're looking at aggressive behavior from a state leadership, of course, Putin, that we we just haven't seen. So it's unexcusable. The truth is that we will not even be able to start communicating really with Russia properly before Putin is gone. I'm glad that you know the sources of dialogue are there. And I'm glad to see that in the past few days and weeks, we've seen Ukrainian advancement, and perhaps this will lead to peace negotiations. But the truth is that Russia and Putin understands only one thing, and that is power. And if you show any kind of weakness, he will simply push through. 
And that's why it'll be very interesting to see what the end game is in terms of territory, either gains or, or losses. You know, this will be such a vivid memory in the minds of all Ukrainians. And remember, Ukraine has begun its path towards its membership in the European Union. So I think that we will be, unfortunately, in a situation whereby Russia will be isolated from Europe for a long time. And by isolation, I mean political, financial, economic, cultural, sports, energy, travel, you name it. We can always say that there's only one person to blame, and that is Putin. And I fully agree with that. And I think the events that have unfolded are, of course, unfortunate. But this is a reality that we have to live with. I wonder what your thoughts are about Brexit that's been widely seen as a tragedy. Do you think there was something positive in that as well, considering that the EU is possibly maybe more united now than it would if the UK was still a member? No, but I'm super subjective here. I mean, you you might know that 75% of my family, in other words, my wife and our two children have dual nationality, British and Finnish. And I do think that Brexit is a travesty and it is probably the biggest, most colossal single mistake that a nation state has inflicted upon itself in modern history. I mean, basically what the UK is doing is it's reducing its size in terms of uh, free trade. Uh, It is sanctioning itself in terms of free movement of goods, services, people and money. There is a reason why the United Kingdom right now is the worst performing economy in Europe after Russia. And that reason is simply Brexit. And there's a reason why the country is in a political, economic and social mess. And that is Brexit. I don't think Europe would have been any more or less united against Russia, where the UK inside the EU or outside the EU. What I do hope in my eternal optimism is that this will make some of the political leadership in the UK see the light and understand that we are in this together. And perhaps this could be potentially a segue towards some kind of a new type of a partnership and cooperation in in, in various areas, but it's going to take a long time. So I, to be honest, I see absolutely nothing positive but Brexit. Sorry for being so stern on this. When you think about yourself some 20 years ago when you were entering politics and you think about those values you talked about earlier in this interview, have your thoughts changed in anything? Well, thoughts have to change all the time. And you know, I'm a big fan of Adam Grant, the organizational psychologist at Wharton. And he talks in many books about, for instance, a book called Think Again, about the fallacy that somehow being right is innately good. No, because if you're wrong, you actually end up learning something. And I'm sure that I've learned throughout. And and, and one of the things we have to understand that, you know, life and global politics is a process. So from 1989, when I started to gain adult consciousness, and <laughs> became academically interested, you know, it was really a fantastic time because that was a time when the Cold War ended, the Berlin Wall fell, and there was this sense of Francis Fukuyama's end of history that the best form of society and governance is social market, economy, liberal democracy and globalization, and that all 200 nation states of the world will embrace this. And there was a strong belief that, you know, interaction, integration, cooperation, trade, 
technology, information, it all brings us together. But now we have learned in 2022, so over 30 years later, that actually some of the things that bring us together or were supposed to bring us together are driving us apart. You know, we live in a world where the nation state is not anymore capable of providing the goods and services that uh, general citizens expect. And that's why they become very clicky. And by clicky, I don't mean pressing the mouse uh, on internet. I mean, they become very identity-based. So they seek security in different types of places, different types of groups. And they stand up on the barricades going against, say, you know, big corporations and capitalism or, or nation states and government. You know, we've seen what binary and polarized societies can lead in the United States. And, you know, we're fighting this whole idea of facts and disinformation. And so, you know, I'm just like anyone, you, you keep on learning that perhaps eternal peace will not be achieved by cooperation. We need to have various forms of governance to try to contain that. It's always about a balance. And I, I think one of the things that we have to remember that we'll never live in a utopia, we'll never live in a perfect world. And we'll just have to try to find the right balance to manage and the resource allocation, security and safety that we all as human beings want to get. We started this interview by talking about what drew you into politics. And when you think about your life and career, what does it tell us about what kind of a country Finland is? Yeah, I remember when I was foreign minister, we did this branding report of Finland, which, of course, in Finland was heavily criticized because you don't brand. But in any case, one of the slogans that I suggested, spurred on by a friend of mine, which didn't go into the report, was Finland, even cooler than you think. <laughs> but, but tongue in cheek and jokes aside, I mean, I do think that Finland is a very functional society. We've emerged from rugs to riches post-World War II and especially post-Cold War. It's a society which is open, it's entrepreneurial, it's safe, it has good security, it's equal. It tops a lot of the global rankings, whatever you look at, anti-corruption or equality or GDP per capita or education. I do think it's a pretty cool country to live in. At the same time, you know, Finns quite often, we don't bang on our chest and, 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 you know, get sort of snooty about how well we have done. We actually complain and say, well, now we could do a little bit better. But I do think that for all intents and purposes, you look at the world today, Finland is actually doing quite well, but all of us can for sure improve. Alexander, just finally, before I let you go, You're speaking to us from Florence now, and you've been there for about two years now. What kind of plans do you have for the future? I'm very happy here in Florence at the European University Institute, the School of Transnational Governance. And uh, you know, my contract is for five plus a possible three years. I'm very content and right now working on a book called The New World Disorder, Power in the 21st Century. Hopefully we'll be able to package it by the end of the year. Alexander Stubb, thank you very much for joining me on the big interview on Monocle 24. That's it for this edition of the big interview. Thanks to our producer Emma Serland, our editor Jack Tewers. From me, Marcus Hippie, thanks very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.